Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Folklore, Food and Fairy Tales. This is our third seasonal episode, so the format will be just a little different. First there'll be the story, then some folklore about our chosen festive foodstuff, and then some history and recipes. I'll let the story spin its seasonal magic and won't actually explain anything about the folklore in the story. This week, it's a very traditional fairy story from the Brothers Grimm, and I've chosen it because I love the descriptions of the cosy cottage in winter. If you're ready, gentle listener, I'll begin. A poor widow once lived in a little cottage with a garden in front of it, in which grew two rose trees, one bearing white roses and the other red. She had two children who were just like the two rose trees. One was called Snow White and the other Rose Red, and they were the sweetest and best children in the world always diligent and always cheerful, but Snow White was quieter and more gentle than Rose Red. Rose Red loved to run about the fields and meadows and to pick flowers and catch butterflies, but Snow White sat at home with her mother and helped her in the household or read aloud to her when there was no work to do. The two children loved each other so dearly they always walked about hand in hand whenever they went out together, and Snow White said, We will never desert each other, and Rose Red answered, No, not as long as we live, and the mother added, Whatever one gets, she will share with the other. They often roamed about in the woods gathering berries, and no beast offered to hurt them. On the contrary, they came up to them in the most confiding manner. A little hare would eat from a cabbage leaf from their hands, the deer grazed beside them, the stag would bound past them merrily, and the birds remained on their branches and sang to them with all their might. No evil ever befell them. If they tarried late in the wood and night overtook them, they lay down together on the moss and slept till morning, and their mother knew they were quite safe and never felt anxious about them. Snow White and Rose Red kept their mother's cottage so beautifully clean and neat that it was a pleasure to go into it, and in summer Rose Red looked after the house, and every morning before her mother awoke she placed a bunch of flowers before the bed from each tree it rose. In winter Snow White lit the fire and put on the kettle, which was made of brass, but so beautifully polished it shone like gold. In the evening, when the snowflakes fell, their mother said, Snow White, go and close the shutters, and they drew round the fire while the mother put on her spectacles and read aloud from the big book, and the two girls listened and sat and span, and beside them on the ground lay a little lamb, and behind them perched a little white dove with its head tucked under its wings. One evening in the cold of winter, as they sat thus cosily together, someone knocked at the door as though he admired admittance. The mother said, Rose Red, open the door quickly, it must be some traveller seeking shelter. Rose Red hastened to unbar the door, and thought she saw a poor man standing in the darkness outside, but it was no such thing, only a bear, who poked his thick black head through the door. Rose Red screamed aloud and sprang back in terror. The lamb began to bleat, the dove flapped its wings, and Snow White ran and hid behind her mother's bed. But the girl began to speak, and said, Don't be afraid, I won't hurt you. I'm half frozen, and I only wish to warm myself a little. My poor bear, said the mother, low down by the fire, only take care you don't burn your fur. Then she called out, Snow White, and Rose Red, come out. The bear will do you no harm. He's a good, honest creature. So they both came out of their hiding places, and gradually the lamb and the dove drew near too, and they all forgot their fear. The bear asked the children to beat the snow a little out of his fur, and they fetched a brush and scrubbed him till he was dry. Then the beast stretched himself in front of the fire and growled quite happily and comfortably. The children soon grew at their ease with him and led their helpless guest a fearful life. They tugged his fur with their hands, put their small feet on his back, and rolled him about here and there or took a hazel wand and beat him with it, and if he growled, he only laughed. The bear submitted to everything with the best possible good nature. 
When it was time to retire for the night, the others went to bed. The mother said to the bear, You can lie there on the hearth. In heaven's name it will shelter you from the cold and wet. As soon as day dawned, the children led him out, and he trotted over the snow into the wood. From this time on, the bear came every evening at the same hour, and lay down by the hearth, and let the children play what pranks they liked with him. They got so accustomed to him, the door was never shut, until their big furry friend had made his appearance. When spring came, and the snows of winter lay long behind them, and all outside was green, the bear said one morning to Snow White, Now I must go away, and not return again for the whole summer. Where are you going to, dear bear, said Snow White. I must go to the wood and protect my treasure from the wicked dwarfs. In winter, when the earth is frozen hard, they are obliged to remain underground, for they can't work their way through. But now when the sun has thawed and warmed the ground, they break through and come up to spy the land and steal what they can. What once falls into their hands and into their caves is not easily brought back to light. Snow White was quite sad over their friend's departure, and when she unbarred the door for him, the bear, stepping out, caught a piece of his fur in the door knocker and Snow White thought she caught sight of glittering gold beneath it, but she couldn't be certain of it, and the bear ran hastily away, and soon disappeared behind the trees. A short time after this, the mother sent the children into the wood to collect wood for the fire. They came in their wanderings upon a big tree, which lay fell on the ground, and on the trunk amongst the long grass, they noticed something jumping up and down, but what it was they couldn't distinguish. When they approached nearer, they perceived a dwarf with a wizened face and a beard a yard long. The end of the beard was jammed into a cleft of the tree, and the man sprang about like a dog on a chain, and didn't seem to know what to do. He glared at the girls with his fiery red eyes and screamed out, "'What are you standing there for? Can't you come and help me?' "'What are you doing?' asked Rose Red. "'You stupid, inquisitive goose,' replied the dwarf. "'I wanted to split the tree, in order to get the little chips of wood for our kitchen fire. "'Those thick logs that serve to make fires for coarse, greedy people like yourselves "'burn up all the little food we need. "'I'd successfully driven in the wedge, all was going well, "'but the cursed wood was so slippery, it suddenly sprang out.' tree closed up so rapidly, I had no time to take my beautiful white beard out, so here I am, stuck fast, and I can't get away, and you silly, smooth-faced, milk-and-water girls, just stand and laugh. The children did all in their power, but they couldn't get the beard out, it was wedged in far too firmly. I went and fetched someone, said Rose Red. Crazy blockhead, snapped the dwarf. What's the good of calling anyone else? You're already too, too many for me. Does nothing better occur to you than that? Don't be so impatient, said Snow White. I'll see you get help. And taking her scissors out of her pocket, she cut off the end of his beard. And as soon as the dwarf felt himself free, he seized a bag full of gold, which was hidden among the roots of the tree, lifted it up and muttered aloud, Curse these rude girls, cutting off a piece of my splendid beard. With these words, he swung the bag over his back and disappeared, without as much as looking at the children again. Shortly after this, Snow White and Rose Red went to get a dish of fish. As they approached the stream, they saw something which looked like an enormous grasshopper springing toward the water, as if they were going to jump in. They ran forward and recognised their old friend the dwarf. Where are you going to? asked Rose Red. You're surely not going to jump into the water. I'm not such a fool, screamed the dwarf. Don't you see that cursed fish is trying to drag me in? The little man had been sitting on the bank fishing, when unfortunately the wind had entangled his beard in the line, when immediately a big fish bit. The feeble little creature had no strength to pull it out. The fish had the upper fin and dragged the dwarf towards him. He clung with all his might to every rushen blade of grass, but it didn't help him. He had to follow every movement of the fish and was in great danger of being drawn into the water. The girls came up at just the right moment, held him firm, and did all they could to distangle his beard from the line. But in vain, beard and line were all in a hopeless muddle. Nothing remained but to produce the scissors and cut the beard, by which a small part of it was sacrificed. When the dwarf perceived what they were about to do, he yelled at them, Do you call that manners, you toadstools, to disfigure a fellow's face? 
It wasn't enough you shortened my beard before, but you now now need to cut off the best part of it. I can't appear like this before my own people. I wish you'd been in Jericho first. Then he fetched a sack of pearls that lay among the rushes, and without saying another word, he dragged it away and disappeared behind a stone. It happened that soon after this, the mother sent the two girls to town to buy needles, thread, laces and ribbons. Their road led over the heath where huge boulders of rock lay scattered here and there. While trudging along, they saw a big bird hovering in the air, circling slowly above them, but always descending lower, till at last it settled on a rock not far from them. Immediately afterwards, they heard a sharp, piercing cry. They ran forward and saw with horror that the eagle had pounced on their friend the dwarf and was about to carry him off. The tender-hearted children seized hold of the little man and struggled so long with the bird that at last he let go of his prey. When the dwarf had recovered from the first shock, he screamed in his screeching voice, "'Couldn't you have treated me more carefully? You've torn my coat to shreds!' useless little girls that you are, and he took a bag of precious stones and vanished under the rocks into his cave. The girls were accustomed by this stage to his ingratitude, and went on their way, and did their business in town. On their way home, as they were again passing the heath, they surprised the dwarf pouring out his precious stones on an open space, for he had thought no one would pass by at so late an hour. The evening sun shone on glittering stones, and they glanced and gleamed so beautifully that the children stood still and gazed at them. "'What are you doing there gaping for?' screamed the dwarf, and his ashen grey face became scarlet with rage. He was about to go off with his angry words when a sudden growl was heard, and a black bear trotted out of the wood. The dwarf jumped up in a great fright, but he hadn't time to reach his place of retreat, for the bear was already close to him. Then he tried in terror, "'Dear Mr Bear, spare me. I'll give you all my treasure. Look at these beautiful precious stones lying there. Spare my life. What pleasure would you get from a poor, feeble little fellow like me? You won't feel me between your teeth. There, lay hold of these two wicked girls.' There'll be a tender morsel for you, as fat as young quails. Eat them up, for heaven's sake. But the bear, paying no attention to his words, gave the evil little creature one blow with his paw, and he never moved again. The girls had run away, but the bear called after them. Snow white, rose red, don't be afraid, I'll come with you. Then they recognised his voice and stood still. And when the bear was quite close to them, his skin suddenly fell off, and a beautiful man stood beside them, all dressed in gold. I'm a king's son, he said, and have been doomed by the unholy little dwarf who had stolen my treasure to roam about the woods as a wild bear till his best should set me free, and now he's got his well-merited punishment. So, eventually, Snow White married him, and Rose Red, his brother, and nearly divided the great treasure the dwarf had collected in his cave beneath them. The mother lived for many years peacefully with her children, and she carried the two rose trees with her that even bloomed in the depths of winter, and they stood in front of her window, and every year they bore the finest red and white roses. And that is the end of my tale. I hope it pleased you, gentle listener, for it had no other purpose. If you're just here for the story, this is probably the perfect time to leave us. I'd also like to add that today we're going to be looking at the folklore and history behind festive drinks, which mostly involve alcohol. I appreciate this might be a difficult area for some, so I thought I'd give you the opportunity to give the rest of this week's podcast a miss, and hopefully you'll be back to listen another week. So, this is such a huge topic that I couldn't do it justice in full, so I've concentrated on older traditional drinks, which are more attached to them in the way of ceremony and folklore. I have also included a couple of non-alcoholic drinks in the historic recipes section, as there's definitely a need for some more sober options. The festive period in England is a rich scene for traditions and ceremony around drinks. We'll be looking at wassail and what that involves, as well as some lesser known, more localised traditions, as well as a quick look at Scandinavian pagan beliefs. Some of those seem to have started in time immemorial, and no one can be quite sure whether it was just another excuse to drink, or whether the folklore and tradition came first. 
We'll start with those Scandinavian pagans. It's believed by some experts that pre-Christian pagans used to make special beers for their midwinter festival of Yule. The reasoning behind this is fairly simple and logical, as Odin was believed to be the god who taught humans how to brew alcoholic drinks. In order to celebrate and give thanks for the knowledge at a time of feasting, stronger, darker and more highly spiced beers were made in order to toast Odin. The tradition of the spiced strong beers in winter has continued, but is now celebrated as part of Christmas, as medieval law required every household to bless and drink Yule beer. The beer had to be blessed in the name of Christ and Mary for peace and a good harvest. St Thomas also became part of the tradition. St Thomas's Day on the 21st of December was associated with a day that everything has to be ready for Christmas, including the brewing, so the saint is sometimes known as Thomas the Brewer. The Norwegians were much isolated by their weather without modern technology, so they carved calendar sticks called primstavs to help them keep track of all the feast days. There's a primstav in the Norwegian Folks Museum, where Christmas on December the 25th is shown with a big drinking horn, while Thomas Ness on December the 21st is marked with a barrel with a person on top. Norwegians used to visit each other on this day to try and each other's out each other's Christmas ale. Germany has a similar tradition around brewing, special Christmas beers of a similar style, but there's no Odin or St Thomas connection that I've been able to discover. There were also similar traditions on St Thomas Day and Orkney as those in Norway. St Thomas Day was also the day in England for Thomasing or mumping, where those people who would have struggled to have survived through the winter could go to houses of those who were more fortunate and ask for supplies. These supplies took many forms and were often bread, meat, cheese or fuel, but sometimes included ale to take away, and individual cups of spiced ale were often served to those mumping. In England, pre the Reformation, monasteries began to brew, ferment special beers to be sold to the public on feast days. These were known as church ales. Christmas ale was second only to Whitson in this hierarchy of special brews. A lot of ale was brewed at home or bought locally in England, so it's very possible that special ales were made for Christmas, including one I discovered known as orange ale. So, to wassailing. There seem to be as many different ceremonies as there are orchards, but the general principle was to bless the orchard so it would produce a big harvest the following year. This was done by scaring away any evil spirits and toasting the protective spirit of the orchard, using my pasting soaked toast in the tree branches and pouring cider on the trees. This takes place normally on Twelfth Night, but there are Christmas Eve ceremonies in some parts. Wassail is a hot spice cider punch which forms a big part of that ceremony. It originally started as a warm mead to which roasted crab apples were added, creating a fluffy top to the drink known as lamb's wool. It then progressed to a mulled spice cider topped with spices of, to- of toast drunk from a large bowl. Modern recipes have moved further away again. Some of the mumping on St Thomas Day was specifically to ask for supplies for wassailing. The name of the ceremony comes from Old English. I think you've heard me pronounce it before, so I'm not going to try again. Spiced warm ale with roasted apples dropped into it to make lamb's wool was also popular on Christmas Eve in Nottinghamshire, way outside of wassailing areas, so it was clearly a popular celebration drink, even if there are no apple tree spirits to toast. Another hot spice ale was also to be found in the Isle of Man, where Jan Nonolik was drawn drunk on Christmas Eve. This beer was brewed specially by everyone that could afford to. In some counties, especially in the north, the Yule log was connected directly to beer consumption, as whilst it burned, the servants received an ale allocation with all their meals. It was therefore in their interest for it to be the biggest log they could fit in the hearth. Larger houses would also provide a large keg of strong Christmas beer, which they would distribute along with good cheese and bread on the morning of Christmas Day to their tenants and servants. There were also traditions associated with other drinks. 
At New Year, it was fairly common for a warm posset made of milk, ale, eggs, currants and spice to be prepared, and in it was placed a wedding ring of the hostess. Each of the parties took out a ladleful and tried to fish out the ring, as it was believed that whoever was fortunate enough to catch the ring would be married before the year was out. As you can see from these traditions, many drinks served at this time of year had spices and or heat in common, and that brings to our recipes and sources of our traditional festive drinks. As with all these things, there's a big difference between what was drunk by poorer and wealthier families, but that gap was not quite so large before drinking spirits became popular. England was about 100 years behind other European countries in the popularity of distilled spirits, although we had the knowledge at around the same time. England preferred to use distillation techniques for medical waters and tonics rather than large-scale spirit manufacturing. So, before spirits and mixed drinks became popular, the big festive drinks were stronger spiced Christmas ales and mulled wines, ales and ciders. Possets were also popular, especially with women. I'd also like to take a second here to dispel the myth that everyone, including children, was cheerfully knocking back small beer due to the quality of the water. There's a couple of reasons for this. Outside of towns, pre the Industrial Revolution, water supplies were not that bad, and people, even in towns, knew to avoid water that smelled or tasted bad. Most people could source reasonable water, even if it was at a cost. The other reason for this is that pre-Pasteur in 1861, germ theory had not been discovered, even if bacteria had been spotted. People simply did not know how water could make them ill, and that boiling the water would remove most toxins. Small beer was consumed by a lot of people because of its nutritional content and easily absorbed calories, not because it was safer than water. Okay, lecture over. Let's get back to those lovely mould and buttered ales and spiced mould wines. We'll start with the ales. In 1594, the good housewife's handmade for the kitchen contained the recipe for buttered beer. Take three pints of beer, put five yolks of eggs to it, strain them together and set in a pewter pot to the fire and put to it half a pound of sugar one pennyworth of nutmegs beaten, one pennyworth of cloves beaten, and a half pennyworth of ginger beaten, and when it's all in, take another pewter pot and brew them together, and set it to the fire again, and when it is ready to boil, take from the fire, and put a dish of sweet butter into it, and brew them together, out of one pot, into another. Doesn't that sound lovely? In 1660, Robert May provided several additional recipes for warm buttered ales, most of which involved warm ale, spices, eggs, butter and sugar, using a similar method as the housewife's handmade, moving the mixture container to container over a fire and you kill you get something similar to the more modern drink known as an egg flip. There is also a Devon specialty that uses cider instead of ale, though sadly recipes are hard to find. Nothing much had changed with East Smith's recipe in The Complete Housewife or Gentlewoman's Companion of 1773. We however do start to see changes by 1826 when Margaret Dodds has an Edinburgh or Glasgow or both specific recipe called a hot pint, which was similar to a mulled ale but contained spirits as well as the instructions to prevent them causing curdling. Hot or mulled wines were another popular Christmas drink but would normally have been drunk by wealthier people. That's because wine was more expensive to buy and make. There are also variants which contain port and juices known by a series of wonderful names which we'll get to. The first recipe I have is from 1773 by E. Smith again and similar to the mulled ale, contains eggs and uses a similar method. This would be a rich drink, quite different to the slightly more alcoholic recipe from Maria Rundell that contains port and spices, and the Eliza Act 1860 recipe that recommends port, but also states that van ordinaire could be used. 
She notes also if you use ginger or currant wine, you could add eggs to the warm mixture to make an excellent egg wine, so that hasn't gone away necessarily. You'll notice that even by this stage, no spirits have entered the picture. The mulled wine we drink now is more similar to a German Glühwein with added spirits. Other homemade wines were served around this period, like quince wine, orange wine, and much more famously, elder wine. This was drunk by Jane Austen, and there were even stalls selling hot elder wine in Victorian cities. You can't leave this section without examining the more unusually named spiced hot wine drinks like Negus, Smoking Bishop, Smoking Cardinal or Smoking Pope. The last three were known as Ecclesiasticals, and the Smoking Bishop is the most well-known. It even appears in Dickens' Christmas Carol. It's another warm spiced wine drink, but with an interesting addition of a hot, burnt, spiced orange, which was added bitterness and depth of flavour, as well as the smoke, I imagine. I struggled to find early recipes, although its existence in print dates from around 1745. There were several Victorian ones, although including Eliza Acton's, which strangely swaps the orange for a lemon. I have since read that this may be a geographical distinction. The other ecclesiasticals were similar, but were just based on different wines. Negus, it turns out, is just quite a modern recipe for mulled wine. I must admit, I was hoping for more. Hot spice possets were also popular. These were rich spice drinks based on an egg cream mixture with the alcohol of your choice, as well as spices. Hence we have sack, which is a sweet Spanish wine posset, ale posset, wine posset, orange posset, and more interestingly, a snow posset and pope posset. These again did not contain spirits, although they may have used fortified wines. You probably wondered if we were ever going to get to those spirits, and we will now, in the form of punch. The first recorded recipe is in Hall of Woolley's 1670 book, and it's very basic, but abides by the rule of punch, which required to have the drink to have something sweet, something acidic, spice, spirit, and another liquid. Why were the English so behind in spirits drinking, do you ask? Well, it's complicated, and it's probably because they were expensive, and we also didn't drink them because they were foreign. Definitely the English approach. There are essentially four things you can do to spirits to make them palatable once you've distilled them, particularly in the case of early spirits, which tasted burnt. The first is to keep them in barrels until time, and the barrels do their stuff. The second is to add them to things that taste nice until the spirits taste nice. Third, mix them with herbs and botanicals and redistill them. Or fourth, filter the bad things out. I'll leave it up to you to work out which modern spirits do which. The English chose their mixing option, and Punch was born via long sailing voyages, the East Indies, and sailors who will drink anything. This is a very basic summary, and you could do no better than to track down David Wondrich's Punch, which explains it much better than I do, and provides wonderful drink recipes to boot. Punch was very expensive once. It was not accessible to the working classes, because you basically had to buy a big bowl full of expensive ingredients. You would share this with friends, but even so, you couldn't at its beginnings just buy a glassful in the way of a modern cocktail, until an enterprising coffeehouse owner, John Ashley, provided that option, and arguably invented the modern cocktail. It was, however, a celebratory drink that you shared with friends, so you can see how it eventually became a drink for parties and celebrations, especially at Christmas. Once it had reached the later Victorian age, even women could drink it. It wasn't a straightforward journey, but it had become both respectable and a little cheaper. The accessories had also got much more extravagant and good to show off in company. The late 17th century recipes were all very similar to Hannah Woolley's, but as time went, the methods and recipes became more and more elaborate, and even detoured into milk punch, which resembled eggnog in some ways. I provided various recipes for your entertainment, but I think the most extravagant is the recipe that was apparently made for the Prince Regent. This contains a syrup made with citrus fruit, strong green tea, a glass of rum, glass of brandy, glass of arrack, 
pineapple syrup and two bottles of champagne. There are doubtless many others that exceeded this. This recipe was presented by Eliza Act in 1860, so it was not just a drink for the notorious hard-drinking Prince Regent, but might be made for your Christmas party, although hopefully in quite small glasses. I think, as well, before we leave the heady fumes of Victorian party and our visit to the historic drinks of Christmas and this festive season, we should look at a couple of non-alcoholic historic options. Why should you be left out of the historic fine if you don't choose or want to drink alcohol? One of the options were a variety of fruit vinegars, which could be added to soda waters or barley water. These are also known as scrubs, but you do need to watch out if you're researching them, as quite a few of them do contain alcohol. The recipe I've got here is a raspberry vinegar, which sounds very appealing, as well as a recipe for good barley water. The recipe for barley water has one ounce of pearl barley, half an ounce of white sugar, and the rind of a lemon put into a jug. Pour upon it a quart of boiling water and let it stand for eight or ten hours, then strain off the liquor, adding a slice of lemon if desirable. This infusion makes a most delicious and nutritious beverage and will be grateful to persons who cannot drink the horrid decoction usually given. It's also an admirable basis for lemonade. That's from Maria Rundell's book. I think the 1842 version, but if you check in the further reading section of my blog or the link on the show notes, you should get there. The second raspberry is for raspberry vinegar. To a quart of common vinegar, put two quarts of fresh raspberries. Let them stand for 24 hours and drain them off, but do not squeeze them. Put in two quarts more, let them stand as before, and this must be repeated a third time. After which, put the vinegar into a jar, measure it, and to every pint put a pound of lump sugar. Set the jar up to the neck in boiling water and let the vinegar boil for 10 minutes, stirring it frequently. There should on no account be fewer raspberries than the proportion mentioned and the vinegar will not be fit to use until the following summer. I'm sorry you might have to wait till next year for that one, again from Maria Randell, but it sounds like it would definitely be worth waiting for, as long as you had the storage space. And that's the end of this week's episode of Folklore, Food and Fairy Tales. I hope you enjoyed the seasonal story and the exp- exploration of festive drinks. And I hope you'll join me next time for the final seasonal special. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Folklore, Food and Fairy Tales.